0: Welcome back to Everything is Public Health. I'm MJ.
1: And I'm Cass.
0: Now, we both reflected, I think, in past episode, that our high school years was not our favorite time during our lives. But I don't know if you had any high school teachers that was influential or inspired you in any way.
1: I did. Yeah, my French teacher. She was amazing. Uh, just the kind of person that you want to learn from. Super excited, engaged, Cares about her students, knowledgeable on the topic. Um, The other person, my choir teacher, he was awesome, left a lasting impact on me and gave me a lot of confidence now that I wouldn't have had otherwise.
0: Yeah. So, yeah, I think I have similar experience. I had a lot of great teachers in high school. Just shout out to you know all of them, uh, Miss Martin, Mr. Rojas, Mr. Foley, and Mr. Iglesias, and a bunch of others. And yeah, they were definitely better than my peers. <laughs> but anyway, I, I bring this up because I want to tell a really small vignette. My freshman biology teacher, Mr. Foley, was the one that inspired me to pursue science because his class was very informative, it was very fun. And he would have this line that he would always say, like every time we would bring up like, where do we get like these amino acids from? Or how did the, our cells build DNA? He had this line that he goes to every time, which is from the food that you eat. And he would say it with like a lot of passion, like from the food that you eat, because it's true. Like literally everything that we are, cells-wise, tissue-wise, are built from things that we have consumed. Like that's just how it is. You are quite literally what you eat. And that's the go-to line that he would always go to. And I bring this up because... Our body literally needs food to function. And I'm not talking about calories. Calories is is energy. That's like a whole separate issue. It keeps our body working and moving. But there are things that we need to eat that is not strictly for energy that our body needs to survive.
1: Yeah, we're having some challenges at times with our kids because they keep hearing things like fat's bad for you 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 shouldn't eat fat which okay like you don't want to consume a whole bunch of fat but there are fat soluble vitamins that you can only yes. consume or you know use in your body if you have some fat in your diet and so I think we've gotten to a place where people forget that it's not just for energy that there are actually things that we need to consume and I I don't know how much this is exactly the case and maybe we'll get to this later but I partially blame like the dietary supplement
0: industry
1: with like vitamins and things like, oh, you don't need to eat a well-balanced diet. Here's a vitamin to cure all your ills. So get off my soapbox. (laughs) So
0: I was going to save it until the end as a nice little surprise to you. Listeners, Cass comes on the show and she actually doesn't know exactly what's going to happen that recording day. And it's, again, I just want to tell you how much I appreciate you. Like, you just come on and you and you just roll along with, like, whatever. Sometimes good script, sometimes a heaping pile of garbage that I have ready for you. But I was going to save this until the end as a nice little surprise to you. But our next week's episode is Public Health Plus again. Because this is a topic that I believe both of us would have a lot to say. <laughs> You just sort of alluded to one of the talking points as we're going to do next week, which is the supplement industry.
1: Yeah, I mean, and to be clear, like not all supplements and vitamins are There's a bad place and, for them. And yeah. there are people who have deficiencies yeah. that you literally cannot get through your diet because it would be impossible for you to eat enough of something. Mm-hmm. So I totally understand that my family has low B12. Doesn't matter how much we eat in our diet, doesn't matter what we eat, we just are all prone to that. And so I have to take a Supplement for that. So, not throwing shade like across the board, as you know, I like to paint with a broad brush, <laughs> but just that there are folks who kind of take advantage of yeah. maybe a lack of information, lack of a focus on some of these. You are what you eat. You get it from your food kinds of experiences that you had with Mr. Foley.
0: Yeah, exactly. And even more common one is anemia. Like that's iron. Some people just have anemia and there's nothing. They're just genetics. They just have anemia and they need iron supplements to uh, take care of that.
1: Wait, what did you just say? What kind of supplement?
0: Iron. What did I say? What do you think I said?
1: Something <laughs> sounded like you said iron supplements.
0: Oh, okay. Iron. Iron supplements to take care of it. Yeah,
1: no. Well, it sounded normal the second time, but the first time it sounded a little peculiar. So I was like, is that a a different compound I've never heard of before?
0: I actually contemplated on taking like a speech class because I, I catch myself mispronouncing things like all the time. And it's actually bothering me when I edit. But anyway, so there are things called essential nutrients. These are nutrients that our body cannot make ourselves. Our body is very good at making things that we need. So in terms of amino acids and proteins, or in terms of fats, like our body will just be like, well, time to make some fat. And then your body will just, you know, make some fat. But there are things that we must acquire through our diet that we call essential nutrients. So carbs, there's no such thing as an essential carbs. Carbs are just carbs. So they're just like energy bundles that you need to eat to keep going. But we're just going to go down the list. Uh, there are such thing called essential fatty acids. Uh, have you heard of them? It was really popular like a decade ago where everybody was like freaking out about these.
1: I mean I yes, I couldn't tell you what they are.
0: It's omega 3 and omega 6.
1: Oh sure. Yeah, from 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 salmon and other fishes.
0: <laughs> yeah, very common in fish. I have a family particular member, I'm not going to say who, but who is very into supplements and there was a time where we would be sort of like heavily suggested that we need to take a bunch of like fish oil pills because it's, it's good for kids, right? And is it good for kids? I like, if you eat a balanced diet then and you don't have a deficiency, it's like not necessary that you consume extra fish oil. Anyway, there are such things called essential fatty acid, which is omega-3s and omega-6 that you can only get through your diet. That's very important for brain health and just basic building blocks of fat that you cannot make yourselves. Amino acids. We can make most amino acids in our body, but there are actually something called essential amino acids, this is a little bit more obscure. I don't know if you know this one. James would know. I don't know. Oh, is he really into amino acids?
1: He's into sort of health and well-being. And and he talks about, you know, if you're going to exercise or lift weights or some of these things, like what you eat after you exercise is important because there are different ways that you burn fat and and build muscle. And I'm sure once you say it, I'll probably recognize it as something that he's talked about, but it's not something that's ever stuck.
0: Yeah, so uh, essential amino acids, some of these, phenylalanine, valine, theranine, tryptophan, methanine, leucine, isoleucine, lysine, and histidine. Lysine is one that we talk about a lot. These are amino acids that we can't make ourselves. But here's the good news, right? Unlike the essential fatty acids, which if you really don't have any sort of fish or oils in your diets, you might have issues with that. But protein is something that in a developed country, if you eat meat, like you'll just you'll just get them. So these are less of a concern, but definitely a concern in uh
1: low and middle-income countries, developing or low-middle. Yeah, yeah, this
0: is more of a concern for developing and low and middle-income countries where they might not have access to the proteins that they need to sustain themselves. So you could have disease like kwashiorkor Uh, which is a funny name for a veritable disease, which is basically somewhere linked to protein deficiencies. So those are the two things that people might not necessarily think about. And then we get to the things where people think about, perhaps a little too much, thanks to advertising from (laughs) the supplement industry. Vitamins, which are things that, uh, some vitamins we can make ourselves, but there are a lot of vitamins that we must acquire through the diet that we cannot make ourselves. So uh, do you want to list some Usual suspects when it comes to vitamins?
1: Yeah. So there's vitamin A and C. There's multiple Bs. I'm not going to remember all of them, but there's like niacin and folate and B12 that I mentioned before. There's probably like riboflavin. I used to know I was a biology major and minored in chemistry. I used to know more of these, but that was, I don't know, five or six K maybe.
0: There's a K. Yeah. So these are vitamins that are critical to your body. Function. There are a lot of them. We're not going to go through every one. But back in the day when people got sick, it was usually because they weren't eating enough. And it wasn't until perhaps mid 1700, uh, 1800, like that period where calories started to become less and less of an issue. And people start developing these diseases that was not linked to under eating like they were eating but they were not getting the uh, the right nutrients. So a very, very popular one is scurvy.
1: I was just going to say scurvy. <laughs>
0: scurvy, which is uh, associated with pirates. This one uh, you probably know, which is a deficiency of what? <laughs> Vitamin C. Do you know the symptoms of scurvy? Uh,
1: They had like curved legs and something else I don't remember.
0: I think curved legs might be vitamin D, but scurvy is a very nasty. Basically, your soft tissues start to break down. So they have bleeding gums, sores and bleeding gums, and just their skin will start to like fall apart and rip open. But it's a very nasty disease. And this happens with sailors because sailors had to eat shelf-stable foods. And back then, shelf-stable foods did not contain a lot of vitamin C. Um, So the cure to this is obviously to bring lemons on board, right? That's what they figured out. There's actually a whole story with scurvy that we're not going to get into. But another common one is berry berry, which is a lack of, do you know this one?
1: I do, but I don't remember.
0: This is a thiamine, which is vitamin B1 and also very nasty type of disease. Again, they figured out that it wasn't a calorie issue because these people are eating. They're just not eating the right food in the right amounts that they develop these specific deficiencies of particular vitamins.
1: Well, and folate is in a lot of prenatal vitamins, right? Because that's the closing of the neural tube during fetal development and can lead to Not cystic fibrosis.
0: Cerebral... Cerebral palsy. Yes, there we go.
1: So folate was identified as a really important one, and that's a big component of prenatal vitamins.
0: And obviously, we're not going to go through the entire list of things, but this is the period where they found out that, huh, even if we give people a lot of food to eat, they still got sick from classic signs of like malnutrition and they find it really weird and then it took a lot of time because back then the scientific method wasn't as rigorous. So they were just sort of guessing instead of testing methodically, it took them a lot of time to figure out that oh they need to eat specific foods to avoid these things. Next on the essential nutrient list is minerals. We think about these a, a lot less, but we actually did one an episode about an essential mineral when we did the iodine episode. If you don't have enough iodine intake, you get groiters, which is basically your neck gets like really puffy because of your um, thyroid gets gigantic when you don't have enough iodine but there are other essential minerals let's see how many Cass can name oh geez <laughs> uh calcium is one of them yes important for your muscles and your bones
1: you already said iodine um man i have not had enough coffee yet this morning calcium is the only one that i can get in my brain and i know that there are more
0: uh what about your blood oh iron iron
1: oh i thought yeah we talked about iron in the we talked about iron earlier, but yeah, iron. Iron.
0: <laughs> Obviously, there's some that are essential, but we don't really think about because our consumption of them is fine. A sodium and chloride, but you know, it's salt. potassium also fine because they're just commonly found. Oh,
1: magnesium too, right? Oh yeah,
0: magnesium also. Yeah,
1: I had an issue with magnesium. Oh, you do? No, I did. After surgery, I had to eat a lot of magnesium, which the prescription was dark chocolate.
0: So, oh, lovely. <laughs> That's really nice. But yeah, these are what they call like trace amount metals or trace amount minerals where you just need a little bit, but your body needs that little bit to function effectively. Other things that are less common, chromium, copper, fluorine. Um, manganese which is not magnesium
1: manganese i always loved when i was studying this topic i just got such a kick out of saying the word manganese it's a cool one. you know sometimes you hear a word and you're like i just i love that word I love manganese.
0: I totally get that feeling of euphoria. I was like, oh, I love this word.
1: My all-time favorite word ever has been my favorite word for upwards of 30 years at this point. Wow. Abscond.
0: Abscond is, I love the hard K sound in abscond. is really nice. But yeah, like selenium is another one. Uh, Mullydibnium, which is a, a very rare one that we need in trace amount and zinc. Obviously, uh, another one that's very important. But these are things that it took them a lot longer than it needed to be because if they just followed the scientific method of rigorous testing and hypothesis setting and doing like randomized control trials, they would figure out this very quickly. But those concepts didn't exist in people's mind. Eventually, they figured out the scientific method, thankfully. And uh, we're here today with all these essential nutrients that we need to take in our diet. Otherwise, our body cannot make them and we will exhibit signs of specific deficiencies. You may think such dietary deficiency is a rare thing in a developed country like the U.S., and you'd be correct. Plot twist. You thought I was going somewhere else, (laughs) did you?
1: (laughs) I mean, we must have some dietary deficiencies in the U.S.
0: We do. We have around 10% or less of Americans have specific dietary deficiencies, but—and this is important— it is not distributed evenly.
1: Oh, shocker. I can't uh, I can't imagine a public health issue not being evenly distributed across geography or demographics. Yeah. <laughs> blowing my mind, MJ.
0: This is the part where overall we don't run into specific deficiency issues because again, like our food is there and we have generally speaking a lot of it. What's the issue is cost and access. So these 10% of people suffering from dietary deficiencies are often from uh, people experiencing some form of poverty, or people experiencing some form of food desert, which is our very first episode that they just can't have access to good food, and people who have a whole host of other confounding social determinants of health issues. Typically, though, when we talk about dietary deficiency, it is largely framed as a international or global health issue. Even though we do have issues in the United States, this is the part where I cannot get too far into. And so we'll save it for next week's episode of Public Health Plus. Any comments before I move on?
1: No, I, well, not no. I hate it when people say no and then say something. No,
0: go for it. Just say it. Just say no, it. No, I
1: know, but I hate it when people say, oh, do you have anything to add? No, but blah, 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 blah.
0: Then so, yes.
1: <laughs> so, yes. Okay. So, yes, I do have something to reflect on, which is just reminding our listeners that one of the core components of public health is thinking about the health and well-being of the population. And when things are not distributed evenly, whether it's a burden or a benefit, that's a public health concern. And so while you might be thinking to yourselves, but this is a nutrition issue or this is a some other kind of issue that falls under the umbrella of public health because it's impacting population-level health.
0: Yeah, and need I remind everyone, 10% of Americans is a lot of Americans still. That's like, are we at 330 million? Something like that. Right now in population? Yeah. Something like, that's like 30 something odd billions um, of Americans with dietary deficiency. So don't let the low number fool you.
1: And some of these might be kids right we know that a, a yes, lot of a
0: lot of it is kids yeah.
1: nutrition related issues can impact kids because of their parents might not have access and then it trickles down and some of these can be even more impactful or harmful when kids have these deficiencies than if it's among adults so not that frequent listeners to our podcast would think oh these are people who just are making bad life choices. Because, you know, you guys have been around for a while and and we all know that social determinants of health. But I just want to lift up that some proportion of this 10% of people with a dietary deficiency are likely to be kids.
0: Oh, yeah. A big part of it, which is why uh, school lunch programs are very important because sometimes school lunch is where some kids get most of their calories that day because they might not be fortunate enough to have a steady supply of food at home.
1: Or school breakfast programs also. I think we've talked previously that when my kids were younger, our county has a school breakfast program. And so they would have the opportunity to get breakfast and then they could get lunch as well. So that way kids were at least able to start off their day with a full belly and not hungry and unable to concentrate.
0: Yeah, like I think the nutrition issue in America is definitely a big part of it is children's nutrition. And that's something that we will definitely revisit when we do a deep dive into the history of school lunch programs, because that is a very interesting chapter, It's a slightly depressing one in American history. But we're going to move on to this Not necessarily story, but we're going to move on to this segment now. Um, Have you heard of the phrase, better living through chemistry?
1: Oh, sure. It's been a while, but yes.
0: This was the slogan of DuPont, the chemical company, uh, now due to defamation laws and other legal reasons. I can't comment directly about said company. I will not refer to them specifically, but refer to the general concept. There was a time in America where artificially created things was considered better, which is wild to think about today because today's culture is all about like natural, non-gmo organic but there was a time in america where artificial things like canned food hyper processed stuff is considered the superior food i don't know if you like have that experience yourself
1: uh yeah it was more on the the tail end of things i do remember in elementary school talking about how the cardboard box of some of the cereals we would eat probably were better for us than the actual cereal (laughs) itself because they would have to spray vitamins onto the cereal. But
0: Yeah, so there was a time where that happened, where artificial things were considered better because it's cleaner... And it's scientific and it's more advanced and less primitive. That was the whole idea of like better living through chemistry, where we're going to improve America's everyday lives of Americans by using science to make these like future foods, because we are the superior westernized nation. This is food 2.0, essentially, for example, just looking at bread now. I know this is a sensitive topic for you, as you cannot eat bread.
1: I can eat bread. I just can't eat bread with gluten. In it.
0: That's right. The rest of this episode will be about bread. Um <laughs> Thanks. Just a heads some- up.
1: Delicious, delicious bread. Now I'm gonna be craving bread all day.
0: You can have bread, just just not
1: I mean, let's be real. Like anybody who has had real bread and then Eats gluten free bread. It's just not the the same. same. It's not terrible. It's much better than it was, you know, 20 years ago, but it's not the same. So, but that's fine. I'll put my feelings aside and we can talk about bread.
0: Anyway, this is an oversimplified version of the modern history of bread. Bread was and still is a staple food item, but more so in the past than today. Bread is something that has to be made at least in the past relatively fresh because even if it doesn't grow mold it goes stale after a few days like even if you cover it up the maximum shelf life of like a unadulterated as in you know no preservative added loaf of bread is like what a week maybe less
1: well that's where french toast came from right you'd have your loaf of bread it would get dried out and crusty so in the morning you dip it in eggs and fry it in the pan
0: now i want french toast um <laughs> <laughs> So people either had to make it at home because they had to eat it relatively fresh or there was a local bakery that made bread for the entire community surrounding that bakery. Um, there was also a big class divide with bread. Of course, there was. <laughs> of course, there was. And this is, I think, the whole premise of Les Miserables. But there's uh, rich people bread and poor people bread looked very different. At that time, white flour was extremely hard to make because to get to white flour, you need to take normal flour and you have to mill it, grind it, sift it by hand at that point. And it was exclusively reserved for the upper class because white flour is that hard and labor intensive to make. And then a bunch of stuff happened that I'm not going to go into. Sub- urban sprawl, World War II, suburbs, capitalism, a bunch of things happened that made this model of making bread unviable. Now there's a push to not only extend shelf life, but mass-produce bread. And this was the start of the whole Better Living Through Chemistry era where the food industry was desperate to incorporate science into food to solve these problems. And they realized that hyper-processed flour lasts way longer than normal flour. So they invested in Mass producing white flour and tons of effort went into making these like hyper processed bread, and they succeeded. Do you remember those? Like, do you remember Wonder Bread? Are they still around?
1: Yeah, I mean, you can, yes, you can still buy both Wonder Bread and Sara Lee Bread. And I know this because I shop the bread aisle for the rest of my family who can eat the glutinous, delicious (laughs) gluten bread.
0: And how does that make you feel?
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's fine. It's not a therapy session about me not being able to eat gluten. I will say on on its face, using science to improve food production and extending the shelf life of food seems like a good thing, right? Yeah. Because we don't want food waste. I think we've done an episode in the past about waste and trash and plastic and that kind of stuff, but the amount of food that we throw away is just ridiculous. Yes. So if we could minimize that, that would be great, but then you can also take it too far Yes. <laughs> and then we have bad things happening.
0: Yes, great segue about what those bad things are. So they solved the shelf life problem. Now bread can last for a long time on store shelves. And because of suburbanization, you no longer have a local bakery. You have to drive a far distance, we talk about this in food desert, in some communities like up to 30 minutes just to get to a grocery store. And because of that, you need shelf staple bread. And what they realized is that, oh, all the stuff that we removed from the flour to make it super shelf-stable. That's actually where all the nutrients are. So if you look at like wheat and whatever, what makes regular flour, not white flour, is the the germ of the the wheat, like the outer husk of the wheat. So if you peel all that off, that's the husk is what makes flour go bad. So if you peel that off, they realize the inside pure white stuff is very shelf-stable, but they remove all the nutrients, so all the vitamin E, all the, what was that, folate, they stripped it. And do you know their solution to this?
1: Oh, of course, I absolutely. They fortified the food, meaning that they then <laughs> had to add things back in either to the dough or there were some instances where they would spray vitamins onto food so that you could still get them. Yeah, so they, they went from removing it all to then having to go back and put it all back in or most of it because they removed it. So now let's artificially put it back.
0: They realize, and I find this hilarious that when they made like Wonder Bread and like Sara Lee White Bread, they essentially made like a block of carbs with no nutrient. That's essentially what they did. And
1: and no fiber too, right? No fiber.
0: Absolutely no fiber.
1: Right. And then, you know, everybody needs fiber. It's You need it for your digestive system.
0: Yeah. So there was a period of time in the 60s and 70s where By making things shelf stable, they took away a lot of the nutrients. So there was a law that was passed, I believe in the 70s or 80s, where they said, nope, from now going forward, there is a food fortification law and it was passed and our food deficiency problems went away. Now, not every country food fortification laws and not every country because of you know a lot of societal issues and global issues like capitalism and colonialism not every country had the luxury to have local bakery to have like a local mill to make their own flour so they had to import a lot of stuff and if that particular country does not have food fortification laws they are essentially suffering through what america did we would love to think to ourselves that we fixed our problems by fortifying our food But what we didn't think about and, you know, rarely America ever does is about how this affects food at a global scale regarding other countries. I also find this very telling from a social commentary perspective. It went from white bread being a rich person food to a poor person food because as soon as they start mass producing it, like white bread lost the appeal of like elitism.
1: Yeah, right. It became you, you needed to buy the food that was the better version, or you could buy the food that was a better version, which changed over time based on what we learned about these. Yeah. I will say we almost never buy any kind of highly processed bread. Our kids tend to prefer like a hundred percent whole wheat bread and and that's great.
0: They just taste better too.
1: Well I don't haven't eaten whole right. wheat bread in a really long time, so I don't know. Um, but we do sometimes save Like we would consider in our house Wonder Bread like a treat. Like that is a thing. If we're going to go camping for the weekend and then the kids would get to eat Wonder Bread while we're camping because it's like the fun bread. Although that only worked when they were younger. Now they're like, that bread. I don't want to
0: eat that. (laughs) What did you think about this whole idea of like fortifying food after we stripped it of nutrients?
1: I mean, it's just such a US approach to things. It's a very capitalist thing. Like, oh, this is going to help us make money because the food will last longer, right? So we can produce the same amount, have more time to sell it. People can buy it for longer amounts of time. And then we can just go on our, our merry way. And then, oh, whoops, we... We overcorrected, we took away all the good stuff. So now we're going to add it back in as opposed to changing some of the processes that removed it in the first place. So this this is a place where there could have been good scientific opportunities. Yes, You think about ways to use science to improve shelf life that didn't also simultaneously ruin the good parts of the food. But I know people have have lots of feelings about science in the food area and sort of genetically modified product and those kinds of things. We didn't talk about this in this episode, but another important thing to Think about it, our government subsidies for growing different kinds of food, and then yeah. different kinds of crops, and then these crops, which normally would not end up in a particular food type, are ending up in food because there's a because surplus. we have this <laughs> overabundance, and so then like soy is now in everything, which is an estrogen mimicker and can lead to a whole bunch of other issues.
0: Yes, it's lots to talk about, but you already got glimpses of some hot takes that we'll go over in the next episode. Uh, so please tune in. For next week's episode, the return of Public Health Plus, where we go over all of our heart takes about this entire issue of dietary deficiencies and nutrients. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Everything is Public Health. Food is public health. And I hope the phrase, from the food that you eat, pops up in your mind from time to time.
1: In that exact way.
0: Yes, from the food that you eat.
1: New episodes are released every Thursday on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Please give us a rating and a review wherever you listen. It helps the show immensely.
0: You may have talked about this before, but when did you figure out you couldn't eat bread?
1: So I was diagnosed with celiac in... Two thousand five.
0: Oh, not that long I ago.
1: Say, yeah. So I was in my early twenties. I was definitely into the like beer swilling and pizza drinking. Yeah,
0: and then <laughs>
1: and then got super sick and found out I shouldn't have been eating the gluten. The delicious delicious
0: gluten. There were signs along the way. <laughs>
1: there were. There were, but didn't connect the dots. But yeah, so 2005, maybe early 2006 at the latest, but it's it's been a long time.
0: Uh, send us questions or comments to everythingispublichealth at gmail.com. Reach out if you think we missed an important perspective or suggest a future episode topic.
1: Follow us on Twitter at everythingisph or Instagram at everythingispublichealth. You can also find me on Twitter at Dr. krafasi More information regarding this episode can be found in the show notes below.
0: Listeners, we have a Patreon page that is also our website. Visit the site for all major updates and bonus material. If you want to support the podcast directly, you can support us on our Patreon page as well. You can find a link for that in the episode description below.
1: And remember, everything is public health.
0: Everything is public health.